Hello, I'm Brink. And I'm Carla. And this is the Told You So podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Scandinavia. Yes, indeed. And we are going to try, try and answer the very deep question, should New Hampshire become more like socialist Sweden? Yeah, the beautiful Nordic paradise of the socialist states <laughs> up in the North Sea, which is definitely what it is. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really like is that the climates are sort of similar and the vegetation and, um, you know, kind of feels... My parents lived in Sweden when I was young, and there's a, I, I feel there's a simpatico between the, the geographic areas, at least. Yeah, well, so for the record, coming into the show and sort of preparing, uh, I, I don't know, I, I've read a lot of uh, Icelandic sagas. That's kind of my understanding of Scandinavia or where I was at. Uh, and honestly, I thought, based on the pitches that I've heard uh, from other people and from politicians, that Scandinavia was really, it was basically a third way, you know, socialist market hybrid uh, region where they were experiencing a great deal of success with a generous welfare state, uh, companies that are free to compete with relatively low taxes and stuff like that. Um, and really, looking into it more, it turns out that there's a much more complex picture uh, in the works, particularly in Sweden, which is the country that uh, we spent some time, or I sp <clears throat> excuse me, I spent some time looking into. Um, but yeah, Carla, what did you know about Scandinavia prior to <laughs> reading up on this show? Well, everything I know, uh, I know from documentaries or my own personal experience. So I do, uh, I do know it gets super dark in the winter right. for long times and long hours. Um, I can say Merry Christmas in <laughs> Swedish. How do you do that? And it's a uh, God Yul, okay. uh, like good year, I guess. Right. And then, um, and then I know that they say their yeses uh, in in a in a inhalation as opposed to an exhalation. Huh. So, say in Afrikaans, if you were to say ya, ja, you would say ya, ja, or in Dutch, you'd say ya ja, ya ja, ya, ja, you know. But in Sweden, they say <gasps> really yes. Like and I always like... thought it was because it's cold, so you're like. <gasps> <laughs> Interesting. I did not know that. Yes. I, my only like Swedish linguistics experience is the Swedish chef, and <laughs> I don't know how accurate he is. Uh, I do know also that I, I'm a big fan of a lot of music from Scandinavia. Uh, there's a lot of really, really good metal bands, like In Flames is great. And, um, of course, for us old-timers, things like ABBA. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, sure. I actually saw Bjorn in an airport once. Wait, B Bjorn the, or Bjork? The, uh, no, <laughs> one of the guys from ABBA. Oh, oh. Yes, I want to say Bjorn Lomborg or something. Wait, is, is it, that I like a name? I think that's the tennis player. Bjorn, no, Bjorn, Bjorn Lomborg. Wait. No, Bjorn Borje is a tennis player. He played like when uh, uh, Jack, who was the guy who would swear at everything. Uh, John McEnroe. Mac yeah. yeah. Oh my God, we need to start. Jack McIntosh. <laughs> Old, old tennis playing Jack. <laughs> As you can see, we had a lot to learn about Scandinavia before getting started here. But come on this journey with us because uh, you too shall learn. So, um, well, I mean, so here are some general things that I do remember. I remember that they were incredibly strict about drinking and driving. No one there would drink and drive. Everyone would use a taxi. I'm talking about like the diplomatic corps and you mm. know people who partied a fair amount. I know that um, it was the first and fortunately the only place I have ever had someone spit in my face. What? Why? <laughs> and it was because I was white and from South Africa, and this lady, you know, kind of had a beef with with all white people from South Africa Man. and was very upset about apartheid and Nelson Mandela. Uh, you know, which quite rightly, so was I. But you know, I didn't, I didn't really that. get an I... opportunity to, to you know, do anything other than you know wipe the the, the spit off my face. Uh, so that was a weird Swedish experience, um, and um, and it's incredibly beautiful. And yeah, of course, like most of our listeners, one of the stories you hear is sort of the fairy tale of, oh, but you know, socialism works here, and so. You know, I was curious, uh, you know, is that true or not? Yeah, that's sort of why we started exploring these topics for the show. Um, and it is, uh, so one really important fact uh, about Scandinavia is that prior to really the 1100s, you know, we're, we're going to be talking a fair amount about Scandinavian culture and work ethic and stuff like that. 
Um, prior to the sort of Christianization of Scandinavia after the 1100s, uh, it was basically a bunch of seafaring raiders who went and, you know, like... And rapers. Yeah, <laughs> who, who conquered a lot of different places. And, I mean, obviously... They were also traitors. Like, they made it all the way almost to Russia. I feel like that should be a metal band. What, raiders, raiders and traitors? Traitors and rapers. I, <laughs> that's, God. <laughs> or a role-playing game. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. But um, <laughs> Dungeons and Dungeons and more Dungeons. But <laughs> I would like traitor for 100, please. <laughs> but no, so anyway, obviously, like, you know, everything is complex. They, they went and... Uh, they had, you know, some they, in a Viking burial recently, they found beads from an Egyptian bead maker, which suggests that they had, you know, trading routes as far probably as Rome and further south, uh, which is pretty incredible for people from Denmark. Um, but point being, the the reason that those trade routes were established was because they murdered a bunch of people. So this was not like well, a... Well, and also because they were probably like, gee, it's kind of dark and cold where we are. I wonder what would happen if we get on this boat. And set sail. <laughs> Surely it could only be better. Ah, yeah. If the world's flat, we'll figure it out. Well, so in that context, I want to talk briefly about uh, one Scandinavian culture that uh, sort of stood out. It's really one that's always interested me. As I said, I, I've read a bunch of Icelandic sagas. Uh, I've got a big honking book of them with, you know, those cool, like, hand-cut pages where they're all uneven. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Iceland. Um, and so in the context of all these raiding societies that were pillaging and looting about, uh, there was this nation called Iceland. And, uh, now there were a fair amount of Viking type raider people that lived there, but on Iceland itself, it was a pretty peaceful place. Um, and it's where the first parliament in the world was established. It's called the all thing. Uh, it was established in 930 AD. Um, and you can still go to the building uh, that they built on the spot. And it, it was in continual operation. I believe it's met every year since then, except for one year uh, when they were doing, there was some, in some dispute with Denmark. Um, but anyway, so the all thing, it was a general assembly of the Icelandic Commonwealth uh, where the country's most powerful leaders known as the Gothar met to decide on legislation and disp dispense justice. Um, all free men could attend the assemblies. And, uh, they were usually the main social event of the year and drew these huge crowds. You know, people showed up with storytellers and entertainment and it was the thing to do every year. Literally. Haha. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was all things yes, to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I want to read a little bit from a, a, an article uh, that I was reading about sort of the establishment of Iceland. Uh, so bear with me. It's a little bit of reading, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, so this is from an article published by UCLA uh, by, I believe, uh, James Bryce was the author, but we can put the link in the notes. So <clears throat> Iceland's medieval social order reflected the conditions of its settlement. As a culture group, the immigrants came from societies with mixed maritime and agricultural economies and brought with them the knowledge and expectations of European Iron Age economics. The absence of an indigenous population on so large an island was an unusual feature that permitted colonists the luxury of settling in any location of their choosing. There were no hostile natives. I Iceland was uninhabited except for a few hermit Celtic monks. The settlers enjoyed extraordinary freedom to adapt uh, selectively to their new surroundings. Uh, so basically, these people, there was a period called the Landnam, which is literally the land taking, which was 870 to 930 AD, um, when 10,000, maybe 20,000 people immigrated to Iceland from other places. And again, the reason that they were immigrating was because they lived in these places that were basically raiding societies. You were at the whim of these strong men and lords. Um, there was something of a free farmer uh, sort of setup, but... Uh, it was it was sort of an oppressive way to live. And, um, and some people were like, hey, you know, we have options. Let's go try something new. Um, and they found this place. Yeah. And, and they were so far away that nobody wanted to come and invade them. Well, and that's what then they called it Iceland because they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's all just ice. Don't don't worry about it. Right. You don't, don't want to come up here. That, that, that's smart marketing. You know, it's like how I say I think New Hampshire should have a new slogan and it should just be like New Hampshire enter at own risk. Because that was certainly something I really did see in Iceland is yeah. um, it is a I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful country. We actually went to that um, all thing 
when we went to visit last year. And did you know uh, there are really cheap flights from Boston to Iceland? It's only a four and a half hour flight. Really? I did yeah. not know that. And um, and I would say it's worth it. We actually went with a Groupon. I think the whole thing cost us less than like $600 for both of us, air wow. tickets and hotel. Although bananas I mean, it was like, like $8 a f- there, right? Because they have to import yeah, everything. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, but... But genuinely, for a modern place and a modern culture, and fair enough, it is very heterogeneous. Yeah. It's, you know, all of that. But it's, they run on thermal energy from, right. like, the volcanoes. It's, it's, it's green. It's, yes, it's icy in the winter. But it's a super cool place. Well, and like, that's I what, would so, definitely go back there. So I think, uh, returning to this, this is, like, the, it's sort of the, the core of why they might be such a singularly interesting place. Um, and that is, so the legal historian James Bryce summed up the situation in Iceland saying, in Iceland, where no such need of defense existed, where there was no foreign enemy, and men lived scattered in tiny groups around the edges of a vast interior desert, no executive powers were given to anybody, and elaborate precautions were taken to secure the rights of the smaller communities, which composed the republic, and of the priest chieftains who represented them. So because of this situation where they didn't have the requirements of a state, you know, you need the state to provide defense. Well, no one's coming. (laughs) So (laughs) they were able to set up this society where they're like, well, no one's in charge. You can't tell me what to do, but I can't tell you what to do. Now, obviously, you know, it was very few people. It's 20,000 people and on a giant chunk of land. 20,000 is probably like a manageable number. Yeah. Or is it? <laughs> well, but, but it was divided into these different subgroups, and eventually it got div- the island was divided into quarters. Um, there was a dispute where uh, there was a manslaughter case, and basically everybody, to, to bring a lawsuit in Iceland, you had to bring it to the all thing and you know prosecute your lawsuit. Um, and these people were like, man, this guy got murdered like a year ago, and we're waiting to adjudicate it, and that's stupid, so we should have little mini things and then we can bring it to the big thing if the little mini things are not conclusive. And and yeah, and thus so, federalism was born. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so it created this system of really sort of basic, probably unintentional checks and balances among a population of people that wanted to be uh, self-sufficient and uh, really just take care of their own tribes of people. Um, so again, you know, there was this unique cultural situation and, and demographic situation that made it work and that's made it work for thousand thousand years genuinely i do subscribe to those theories that say cultures develop differently depending on how harsh their environments were i mean certainly as someone who was born and raised in africa you know it makes sense to me that you know things were a lot chiller there because it's hot as hell uh, you know, before Aircon, I don't think anyone really has <laughs> any sense what places like Indonesia and parts of India and parts of Africa were like. I mean, it was literally like unbearably unbearable. Hot. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I mean, uh. I, I mean, I've literally watched a candle just melt in <laughs> in, in a desert, you know, in Namibia, oh and my so God. yeah, and so it's so not where I incredibly be. hot, right? <laughs> and um, and you. Plentiful, you know, fruits falling off the trees, right. the animals are right there, all of that, in contrast to a place like Scandinavia and yeah. Iceland in particular, where it's a really harsh environment. And it's basically if everyone doesn't work together, and you mm. see this a lot on island cultures, you know, we're all going to die. So there's a vested interest well, in actually the, pulling your weight. So the other really interesting thing, too, about the uh, that Icelandic period, you know, in the 900s is that. Uh, it was a big farming society. So farmers were very important, but the chieftains were also important because they were like the organizers. But uh, so one, one element of their society was that the farmers were sort of free agents. You weren't bound by birth or something to a lord. Um, again, it was these people called uh, Gothar um, who were the, the leaders. Uh, but well, just to quote again from this from this article, uh, while farmers did not choose their Gothi through a, a, mo- a modern election, they chose from among the often numerous competing Gothar in a quarter. 
In choosing leaders, free farmers, that is the majority of the farmers, relied on the lack of significant distinction between chieftains and farmers in early Iceland. The Gothar were themselves prominent local farmers, and Iceland chieftains were what anthropologists call local big men. <laughs> As leaders, they uh, dealt directly with their followers, and if they wanted to hold on to their followers, they had to offer services. Um, so these people, they really had uh, a direct ability to say, listen, like you, you said that we were going to have all of this grain and we ain't got no grain. Like you totally screwed it up, man. Uh, I'm going to go with Olaf. He knows what's up. <laughs> and you could just do that. And there was no social sanction. It was part of society. Right. Um, and it's, it stands in such stark contrast to, uh, you know, all of those medieval feudalistic societies where, you were a serf. You were, you know, in all uh, intents and purposes, property of the Lord. And not like surf and turf. No, the not, bad not like surf. a surf and safari bro. <laughs> Neither of those things. <laughs> the sad, bad surf. Yeah, so, I mean, so Iceland is just one of these Scandinavian countries that developed a rather unique culture, um, probably as a result of the absolute hardship of living in those kind of places, and probably because the people that went there uh, were the kind of people that were willing to put in this sort of crazy amount of extra work to get away from the insanity of <laughs> medieval society. Right, and and probably, you know, risk takers um, and people who probably had a longer time horizon too, right, where they were kind of like, oh, I don't want to stay here in this very high-risk situation with right. these people that is making everything around me dangerous. What if we go and do something? But what I actually find pretty fascinating there is this idea of uh, colonizing a place that didn't have indigenous people that <laughs> right. you have to screw over. There was because nobody we have to displace. so few yeah. examples of that, right? Yeah. So that's kind of cool and interesting because for once, like there's no one, no one has to, you know, bear guilt. And I don't personally believe in collectivized guilt, right? So like wh whoever did whatever to whomever, you know, I'm sorry it's shitty, but kind of not my problem either. Right, but there's no Iceland was built on the backs of X. Right, Except exactly. for Iceland, Except Icelandic those poor, people. The, yeah, for, yeah, well, and, and those few handful of, uh, what were they, Celtic uh, Celtic priests. Yeah, those monks, they didn't you know, make it out and, so and good. And they might have been Although like, who, I don't know. know, I, you know maybe what? they got kicked out for some reason. Maybe I don't know. They, they probably know. just let them keep being hermits. I, I, I would have to, I'm not just going to uh, declare that the medieval Icelanders let the Celtic monks hang around. I don't know if this is like a, a Holocaust I wasn't aware of historically <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm pissing well, off I'm a bunch not, of people. Well, I'm genuinely <laughs> hoping that's not the case because yeah. wouldn't it be neat to go, oh, wow, here is an example of a culture where, you know what, yeah, they chose peace and it kind of worked. I mean, I don't think Iceland, hasn't it always remained neutral? Yeah, they've, the been a, they've been a very... And, neutral society uh, and they, they they were the only country who actually like locked up all their people after the 2008 financial crisis mm. like the heads actually rolled like people were held accountable not and, literal and so heads much of it, rolling yeah. i think so so much of it is based again on the the founding principle of what are you going to come invade Iceland? Right. <laughs> like we're but, so far away from everyone but also the the sort of principles of you know, this is how we run our society. Like, if you actually create rules for how things are going to work and then stick to them, mm -hmm. that's useful. That's well, kind of how it's supposed to work. And that's right? what's so amazing about the all thing is that it, it created this institution that's endured for over a thousand years. Like, these people, you know, you had this idea to be a harmonious society. We all got to get together and hash things out. Uh, and, you know, it, it got codified further into a more, uh, more modern government structure. But... At its base, it's still a bunch of neighbors getting together and saying, what's pissing you off? Are we happy living together on this island? What can we do to be happier? Right. You know, Actually, let's, let's work together and make this the best possible thing. Uh, another, random, but again. <laughs> another random thing I know about Iceland is they have a tradition that's also very ancient of uh, they all gift each other a, a book for Christmas that yeah. is your traditional gift like everyone has to give someone else a book hmm. and I think that's kind of cool too right because you're sort of supporting a culture of reading and the word book comes from Icelandic it does in Icelandic it's book lot of cool people and stuff that come out of that region of the world. In fact, there's this other dude whose name I'm going to butcher. <laughs> Let's try. All right. Anders Chidenius? Sure. 
Yeah, Andrus, Andrus. Anders Chidanius. Oh, <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. He. Uh, That's my best he... approximation of a Swedish accent. <laughs> he <laughs> was actually he was Danish, but he's like one of those uh, dudes that <laughs> sorry, all the Sweden. countries um, claim for themselves, much like up here with Robert Frost, sure. the poet. Is he from Vermont? Is he, he from, from New Hampshire? Hampshire? No Is he from Rhode knows. Island? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but they're possibly, you know, they're twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Frost. You know, he had a lot of farms, museums and, and claims to, to his uh, his roads traveled and not traveled. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this dude is actually super cool because he basically was like the f- he was like the pre Adam Smith, right? Okay, wasn't he like the Adam Smith before the Adam Smith? I don't know. I'm looking at Brink, going, "Why are we talking about this guy? Am I oh. supposed to say something?" Yeah, Hold no, no. On. Well, so I mean, here's what I know about this guy. <laughs> He was really into minimal state power. Yeah. He liked low taxes. He was for farmers' rights and freedom. And that is what I got on Andreas. Well, he was he was in favor of freedom of the press, too. And uh, uh, he was actually huge on that. Yeah. So this guy sounds like, again, he's he's just sort of one of these people that was like the embodiment of the Enlightenment and probably had like four or five wrong ideas. But the West, the rest were all right. (laughs) And, yeah, well, yeah, and and I do think the whole pre Adam Smith thing is is correct. Like this guy was kind of you know he was a bit of a mover and a shaker, and he's not that well known now, but it feels like he should be. And he kind of had a little bit of like um, he, he you know he talked about universal rights, yeah. he talked about privileges. Yeah, and this was all right around the time of the American Revolution too. So, I, like, he was he was prolific in the seventeen seventies. I think maybe Jefferson read a lot of his stuff. Hmm. I don't know. I'm making stuff up now, sure. guys. Don't why, you know I mean, why, why? Why not? I can't even say his name. Sounds like so it. No, he, he's a guy. No, he's a guy who writes about natural rights and no. But I, so this is what's what's kind of interesting about. And there are a lot of these thinkers that came out of Scandinavia, um, where there was really like a liberal revolution happening around the world and liberal meaning in the classical. in the classical liberal exactly as opposed to so this is maybe a good little detour to go down briefly so Ooh, you uh, know I, I love me a detour <laughs> <laughs> well i i recently listened to this interview with uh george will uh on reason uh tv reason.tv i believe um but he was talking about the difference between uh european conservatism and american conservatism and what does the word liberal mean and blah blah you know all these concepts because the terminology gets very mixed up so here's the deal there were just people that were involved in politics and then there was a revolution of these ideas called the enlightenment and the people that were against the enlightenment were called conservatives because conservatives thought that there was uh, value in the traditions of the peerage, uh, the church's sort of uh, deep integration into the state and into the life of people, um, the church's heading off of scientific inquiry. They thought all that stuff was good stuff. Yeah, those guys had a <laughs> monopoly on like how we run shit, right. and then someone came along and they were like, hey, I think we could do better. Right, and those, those someones were an army of philosophers and thinkers and writers, and it all exploded after the printing press when all of a sudden people could write a tract and publish it and other people could be like, oh my God, somebody else also thinks that it's stupid I can't say these things? I know, and I know we have <laughs> blogs and, and we have all these voices now, but I think we should bring back pam- pamphleteering, man. I, I could be down with some little pieces gotta of paper. There's got to be like an e, e-pamphlet. Hmm? Yeah. That you can or... like shoot into someone's <laughs> eyeball. No, but, but anyway, but point being, so those people that were involved in the Enlightenment, this revolution in thought, uh, were liberals. They were called liberals. <laughs> they that was their mode of thought. And basically, around the world now, liberals and neoliberals, as they're derisively called in Europe, are people that believe in free markets, free speech, uh, freedom of intellectual inquiry. Basically, all of the ideas that were codified in the Declaration of Independence, all of those striving ideals of the American, you know, early republic. And so, in America. In the people America, in America. People. <laughs> well, no, but the, the people in America that were pushing. Wow, I just said it really hard. The people <laughs> in America were pushing those ideas. Um, they <laughs> they were the dominant establishment. So the liberals, the classical liberals in America, who wanted to promote the ideas of the Enlightenment, 
became the conservatives when the progressive movement happened. Oh, that's interesting. But see, but the term liberal has been hijacked, right? Because liberal now means progressive, right? And although I feel like progressive has kind of gained traction, maybe like 10 years ago, it was more like you were, if you were liberal, you were progressive, yeah. but well, now we actually call them progressive, which probably and, means that we're winning that argument. And I think that there really is a, a substantive difference, too, because if you think of like the liberal involvement in the civil rights movement, um, liberal involvement in the women being granted the right to vote. Those are all liberal ideas. They're classically liberal. It's expanding the franchise. It's expanding the scope of the recognition of human rights um, to every human being. So those all fit really well, actually, into the classical liberal paradigm. Um, but it's after you know the, the 50s and 60s when progressivism and socialism, which is different from liberalism, gets integrated into this whole conversation. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so as a point of terminology, this guy... Chidenius, Chidenius, whatever his name, however you say it, um, he was a liberal, a, a big flaming latte sipping liberal. If I mean, if they had liberal, if they had lattes, lattes. In, in Denmark, he was <laughs> sipping them. <laughs> um, yeah, and just uh, really into freedom of expression, right? The press, right. like that was a big one. And, you know, we need to remember what a big difference that stuff made, right? The Gutenberg Press, when that came out, was how these wonderful ideas that lift people out of poverty and make the world a better place right. spread so fast and so quickly. You know, sometimes when I look at things in history and I go, wow, that was only 200 years ago. You know, even something like nation states. Yeah. You know, we've gone from, there it's were like recent. 80, yeah, there were like 80 countries at the turn of like the 18th to 19th century. Yeah. Uh, maybe even less than that. Now they're over 200, you know, so it's like it's a constantly expanding thing as we decentralize right. and decentralization for me is a form of liberation it's mm-hmm. a form of being more free because you get to really pick your tribe and pick your nuances and as we're doing up here in new hampshire right yeah um and you know and i actually see another similarity maybe with like the icelandic um parliament is this idea up here where you know we have the third largest uh, legislature in the English-speaking world, right? Well, and it's, it's a real citizen legislature where you, like, you don't get paid to show up, basically. Oh, my God. I saw such a slam. <laughs> you go for week. the party. There was, there was one politician <laughs> here called the other politician a career politician. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's a burn considering uh, they both career. had other jobs and you get paid one hundred dollars <laughs> a year here which we think is wonderful because that means you know people are really doing it to serve and not to you know just rake in the dough and do the corruption well it is always funny when there's a, a facebook comment on like a national story about a legislator in new hampshire and the comments are always like oh all doing this will pulling down huge salary from the taxpayers and it's like well actually joe from ohio they're <laughs> not pulling down anything but <laughs> I mean, they do get free toll and they get uh, gas mileage, which I've heard can be. Um, can add up if you live up in the yeah, middle of nowhere. Can, can you know get get stacked yeah. a bit, I suppose. But anyway, but, well, but speak, anyway speaking what of the oppression say, of legislature. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say. So here in New Hampshire, your rep actually represents about three thousand people, which is to me the size of a small village ish. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're speaking on average now. And that's kind of cool because, you know what, I probably know 3,000 people, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like that that's someone who can look you at the in the eye at the, at the grocery store yeah. and be like, you just, you know, voted to raise my taxes to, you know, for, for schools and right. schools and education is actually something we should talk about. I'm not sure uh, if, if we're there yet. Well, I think, yeah, there, we'll dive into that a little bit with the, okay. this lecture. Um yeah, but so <clears throat> the, the, the point of all this being that uh, the Scandinavian cultures produced a lot of people that were interested in the Enlightenment, interested in that sort of intellectual revolution, and it really panned out in their culture, um, and it brought a huge amount of success to Scandinavia, to Sweden, to Norway, to Denmark. Uh, they had very open, free societies 
uh, from you know the 1850s on, and very very wealthy. Right. I mean, well, there that's was what, steel. There and was that's huge what industry. That wealth. Exactly. Yeah, but but it was because so, the markets were free, and because they were doing these new cool things. Yeah. So to get to the main topic here, <laughs> uh, at minute 29. <laughs> hey, I think that was very well paced. <laughs> but. Uh, no, so uh, I listened to this really interesting lecture, and again, I can put the link in the show description, um, with uh, Johan Norberg, who's an economist uh, from Sweden, and he's written a fair amount about, uh, you know, what what are these Nordic countries really like? What is the Nordic model of socialism? Does it match up with people's expectations of it? And where did it come from? Why is it successful? Um, so one thing that he brings up at the beginning of the talk is... Uh, Scandinavia is very successful, and uh, if you look at other Scandinavians, um, 11 million American, yeah, 11 million Americans have Scandinavian ancestors, um, and those people have been even more successful than the people that stayed in Scandinavia. Uh, their income is 20% higher than an average Americans, and their poverty poverty rate is about half of that of an average Americans. Um, so. Maybe part of the question here is talking about Swedish culture and sort of the preconditions and un like cultural understandings that people that come from families from those cultures have. Um, so at the outset of the Swedish welfare state, uh, in the 19, as I said, there was sort of a market revolution in the 1850s. Uh, Sweden had a very successful economy. Uh, they were much wealthier than most of the other countries around them, in Europe particularly. <clears throat> so in the 30s, uh, this group called the Social Democrats, uh, with sort of the intellectual leadership of Gunnar and Alva Myrdal, uh, put forth these proposals for the Swedish welfare state. Um, and they said Ooh. that. <laughs> well, no, they they said you know we've created all this wealth. We can we can we put can these, afford to do right. This. We can put the ideas. We are not nineteen trillion dollars in exactly. debt, but gee, let's give some more free shit to people. Exactly. Well, and they they were part of this new you know just like there was an intellectual revolution that brought markets and liberty to people. There was this intellectual revolution saying. No one ever needs to be hungry again. We have all this wealth. Why can't we distribute it equitably amongst all the people? And that sounds um, like an awesome idea. It, really it really reasonable. does. Right. And, and some of the smartest people in the world had their interest peaked and were like, let's make this a reality because it sounds like a really nice reality. Um, so anyway, these, these two, it was a couple, Gunnar and Alva Myrdal. They were sort of the intellectual grandparents of the Swedish welfare state. Um, and while they, while they were putting together these policy propositions, they had a number of preconditions that they said made Sweden uniquely well adapted to trying the welfare state uh, that they were interested in experimenting with. So uh, here's those four conditions. Number one, it had a small and homogenous population with high levels of trust for the government and one another. Um, again, small and homogenous because everybody's related to one another. It's a little country. There's not that many people there. Um, so you're likely to see in the government, you know, somebody that's your third cousin or something. Um, there's a sense of connectedness in that community. Um, a civil service that was efficient and free from corruption is number two. Uh, in Sweden, all of the affairs and documents of the state were public starting in the late 19th century. So they weren't able to hide financial malfeasance like or, so many other governments. You know, secret lists of bad cops. Yeah, right. Or, or yeah, black <laughs> budgets or th those things weren't really around. Um, the third one, and this is controversial probably, was a traditional Lutheran work ethic. Um, the sense that you were supposed to want to work and your family and society demands that you work, whether or not it pays, and that part of your life is working, and that's what gives you value and meaning. Um, so that was number three, and that was a pretty important one right. uh, as far as the cultural expectations that undergird a uh, welfare state. Like an idea of self-reliance, or right. what we often will call sort of you know personal responsibility, same right. sort of idea. Um, and, uh, oh, and I said there were four, but there were only three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, the, the fourth point was just that uh, in, in a bunch of polls, it's been shown that Scandinavians uh, lead the world in the percent of their population that find it unacceptable to receive government benefits that you're not entitled to. So if so, anybody's... So, so welfare scams... Cheats, fraud, and, and, scams. Yeah, it's really frowned upon, yes, right? It's, because, but that goes back to that self-reliance right. idea and that sort of idea of... And you're of, taking from everyone else and you don't deserve it. Yeah. Right, you know, but it, but that it's considered a virtue, so it's kind of like if everyone's willing to work, then it should be, then it seems logical that people would be more inclined to then all share in the benefits and stuff. Right. I think where there's often a disconnect is where you start to have the situation where 
one group of, and I think it's like this now in America, where there's one group of people who kind of feel like they have to work, mm -hmm. and there's another group of people who are like, we just want the handouts. And for right. me, mm -hmm. a really prime example is just the disconnect on pensions. Yeah. In terms of, you know, people in the private sector can no longer afford to retire. Like, if you're working for yourself, if you're self-employed, right. or uh, you have a, you're a small business owner or whatever, you are not going to retire in your lifetime. And, and meanwhile, um, you, you know, that officer in Arizona that murdered a guy, uh, they rehired. Yeah, they rehired him to give him a twenty five hundred dollar a month pension for the rest of his life. I mean, that he, just he's makes so me upset livid. That he murdered that guy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it, yeah. Well, anyway, that's a whole different show, and now my anger about that has peaked, but I'm going to get back to cool, calm Scandinavia. Where it's, <laughs> we're going to be icy cold. I'm going to let the safety net catch me in its <gasps> gentle arms. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, so one in sort the 30s. Of, yeah, so we'll, but one sort of important thing is that uh, the Myrdals, this couple that was the architect of the Swedish welfare state, they said that if the welfare state couldn't work in Sweden, it couldn't work anywhere. That was... Dun, dun, dun. Right? Well... Uh, well, uh, so just really quickly, just to give you an but idea. But it did work, Brink. Didn't it work? <laughs> it worked magically for not... <laughs> for for not some period of time, die. and then not so good. But uh, so the, just to give you an idea of the sort of like explosion of growth that maybe made people think we're going to be wealthy forever. This is going to keep working forever. Like we've changed so much. This is how history is now. Um, in, you know, the 1960s in Sweden, people were still making bread out of tree bark. <laughs> and basically, 1860. Or excuse me, yes, yes. not 1960. <laughs> it was the Jetsons and tree bark bread. No, but uh, um, they, yeah. So the 1860s, excuse me. So they, it, it was it was a subsistence society. And then between 1860 and 1910, wages for workers increased about 25 percent per decade. Um, and that whole time, the public sector never surpassed 10 percent of the GDP. So there was this huge explosion of growth. If everybody's getting a 25 percent uh, raise every 10 years. I mean, think about the compound interest on that for a society. It's amazing. Um, so when the Social Democrats took power, um, number one, they had an issue in that uh, the socialist class struggle narrative didn't really map to Sweden's society. There wasn't a proletariat and an oppressed. Mm -hmm. It was a bunch of free, freeholding you know, landowners and farmers. So they weren't going to be able to do the pit the rich against the poor thing. Right. Um, so they really made it all about the middle class um, and the, and they pitched it as a safety net to support people so they don't fall through the cracks and to provide proportional benefits to people that pay into the system. So really the bulk of the payout is to the middle class and the poor kind of get shafted and the rich sort of get shafted. But as, as we'll see, it's really not too bad for them, actually. Um, so... Uh, and it's kind of interesting, actually, at that time and really throughout Swedish history, trade unions have always been proponents of free market and free trade right? Um, and free enterprise. And, and, and I feel like maybe we should just state this because a lot of people don't seem to know this, but in Nordic countries, there is no minimum wage. Right. There is 100% school choice. You get school vouchers and you can send your kid any place and we can delve into that a little more. Yeah. The trade unions have pretty much got it. They believe in free markets. There's none of this protectionism that we see here. Right. Well, so and it it's really is an entirely different system. Yeah. When, when people go, why can't we be more like Sweden? You have to ask, are we talking simply about the welfare benefits? And if so, you know, what does that look like? You know, no one right. wants, like, old people suffering and eating cat food. Well, I and mean, they score, I mean, a better way, most right? of these Scandinavian countries also score higher than America on economic freedom index. Right. Uh, you know, whenever they, I think it's the Heritage Foundation, there's a couple other ones that do uh, the World Economic Freedom Index. The, a lot of these countries score higher than us in terms of how easy it is to open a business, how easy it is to do a business, how much bureaucracy is involved in, you know, when you hire somebody. All of that stuff is a little bit easier I mean, to do there. And, it always has been. And and genuinely, and, and not necessarily always has been, but if you want to watch some mis miffed prime ministers, you know, <laughs> you'll you can find all you know, all the Nordic countries, definitely Denmark and Finland I have seen and probably Sweden, where they're like, I would just like to tell America that we are a market economy. <laughs> and you know, and they're very yeah. uh, you know, they get kind of annoyed because right. they're being painted in a way Bernie Sanders Keep my name out of your mouth. Right. <laughs> very much. Very much that sort of sentiment. So so basically the Social Democrats puttered along introducing 
sort of in introductory parts of this welfare state until the 70s, and that's when they decided to go absolutely nuts. They had monolithic power for 40 years, and they said, we're taking the gloves off. Let's go hard. <laughs> um, so between uh, 1970 and 1990, that's sort of the window when people think about the golden age of Nordic socialism. That's what's in people's brains. So this is the picture that Bernie's talking about, which makes sense, because, you know, uh, the best years of his life were probably back... But, but it was, but it was, I mean, 70s. it depended when, <laughs> but it depended who you were, because I can assure you that right. the, the wealthy, I mean, the poor lady who wrote Pippi Longstockings, uh, yes. Astrid Lindgren or something is her name, I forget now, but um, I mean, she was paying 110% tax. That's crazy. She was, she had to pay in money on her book sales. They kept her royalties and then they were like, you still owe more money. And, I mean, that's insane. So that's when people really started to say, this, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And, well, I'm, so, so basically they implemented these policies in the 70s and, and went really hard at it until the 90s when they had a societal uh, crisis, basically a, a financial crisis. Um, you know, in, in 1970, uh, well, Sweden was... Well, people were literally leaving the country. They were, right. they they were, were like giving fleeing. up their Swedish citizenship yeah. and... Well, that's in, in 1970, they were they were 25 percent richer than the average European country. And 20 years later, everybody else caught up. They weren't richer than anybody else in Europe. And, and a lot of those European countries during that time, I mean, we're talking about Maggie Thatcher and those people, right? Reagan in America. A lot of other people were flipping more towards free market economies. Right. And they were going like Harder. full Right. It was, it was the counter argument to Thatcher right. and Reagan. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, they basically dropped in every uh, measurable measure of economic success. Um, the average growth rate of uh, the economy was cut in half by the 70s, even further in the 80s. They had to devalue their currency five times. That to wasn't buying. Got hit. <laughs> and even worse, it was a huge disaster for entrepreneurs. Um, all these huge businesses survived. Uh it Monopoly turns out power, that yep. yeah, it was something like only one out of the fifty largest businesses um, uh, that existed in Sweden in the nineties was founded after like nineteen thirty. It was all these old huge companies that came yep. along, you know, that were just chugging along. Um, and even more depressing, private enterprise didn't create a single net job between nineteen seventy and nineteen ninety. I, wow. I, it's it's wow. unbelievable. I, yeah. But you know what we forget because I mean I was shocked to read the other day that in England, you know, when Maggie Thatcher came in, ninety percent of British industry was was nationalized. Yeah. When she started in on it. So well, I think we sort of forget we've so been in these like really big huge swings. Swings in the past. And folks, we're not going through anything that's new. Yeah. The only difference is everyone can kind of talk to each other and we're just More realizing <laughs> how, how awful humans are when they're not looking someone in the eye. So yeah. you should do more in life to look people in the eye. Right. Well, and that's looking Brink in the eye right now, yes. very sternly. I know, major <laughs> eye contact. But um, no, and that's what's interesting too. So in, in these Scandinavian countries, also they did not go down because of the, because they realized that businesses are the uh, engines of growth that produce economic success. Oh, say it they, isn't so. Can't uh, we just take it turns all? Out, can't we just take all the billionaires' money <laughs> and fund the government and, for thirty and fund minutes? The government, uh, <laughs> because because I hear that that's what all my progressive friends tell me. If we just take enough from the rich, we can help the poor. You're saying that doesn't. Well, work? that's I'll, I'll I'll explain what they do to fund their welfare state, and you're probably not going to like it. Um, I mean, if you are a typical American progressive or liberal, um, but so they. Basically, they, there was this financial, there was an economic crisis. They had to institute these sweeping reforms um, where they reduced taxes, they implemented school choice, uh, and they really, really slashed the generous welfare benefits. That was the biggest part of it. Um, but the, the interesting part was they never nationalized businesses. They always recognized that businesses are the engine of growth. And so the way that they funded uh, their welfare state, it's through a value-added tax. So it's over uh, over twenty five percent value added tax. That that is a very very bad tax. It's so regressive. It's That's the, so bad. Everyone pays the same rate. It doesn't ma and and the and the thing is like it's not like uh, the fair tax proposal where you get a prebate or something. Oh You're no. You're just shelling out. Oh no! And the worst part because they actually introduced that uh, value added tax in South Africa uh, after the change in ninety four. It was soon after that, and. 
I think the biggest frustration is you're just forcing businessmen to become tax collectors. Right. So, so you're making someone do the taxes for you. And that, I mean, I know that would just drive people I knew insane. And yeah, it's regressive. It's awful. Yeah. And it, it's one line item and they can just keep putting that number up. So here in Sweden, they had it at 25. Over 25. Yeah. yeah. And one of the, one of the other sort of amazing things I think to the, the ears of most of our listeners is that um, they also know that rich people will keep paying out over time. Uh, so they treat them with kid gloves and they're not going to mess with them. It's the opposite of the Martin O'Malley millionaire tax in uh, Maryland. Wow, that was a lot of M's. Martin <laughs> O'Malley millionaire tax in Maryland. Um, and America. But, <laughs> Maryland, America. Uh, but yeah, so they, uh, they have these tax exemptions. Like, for example, um, you can get a tax exemption in Sweden if you're an owner of a large share of a publicly traded company. So, like, I'm rich. I need a tax exemption. <laughs> like just straight up. That's like a it's like a on your third yacht, you don't have you know, it, it's it's those well, kind of crap. I mean it is, but also if you believe that taxation is theft and that you know everyone should be able to keep their money and they're right. cre- creating jobs and all of that. I mean I I, I, I don't know how oh, no. well, I'm just I saying feel it, about it, that. It flies in the face of the idea that, that people oh, have about Scandinavia. Well, no, that it's this uh, redistributive society where they're skinning their wealthiest, and you know, like the the memes about. Oh, like, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep, like, yep, yep. it's very it's very opposite what you would assume their tax structure. Well, like. here's I mean, here's the the frank honesty about a socialist system is you end up screwing everyone. If you are looking at these solutions from an economic lens where you're like, but I want free lunch or I want right. uh, free education. First of all, nothing in life's free. So even if you think it's free to you, there's a cost somewhere, someone is paying for it. And here's the sad little secret about socialism. Psst. You're paying for it too. Right, That's you're always paying for it. How it works, and whether it's through a VAT tax or through currency devaluation or through there's a whole variety of ways that you can pay for socialism. <laughs> but well, and I mean, so that's that's sort of the uh, the 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 frustrating thing about it too. I don't know necessarily that it's people saying I deserve free X, Y, and Z. Like most of the time when I hear people talking about socialist policies, it's not phrased as I deserve free health care. I mean, it can be like I, I in the he- whiniest I, incarnations. I do hear that a lot now um, with health care. I, I hear it mostly with education. Yeah. Now. Like, like I, 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 I mean, even libertarian friends of mine, younger people who have just graduated and stuff. I mean, I, I do hear people starting to even make a soft sort of libertarian argument for free colleges hmm. and for debt write downs on education. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm curious about all of this, but once again, like, I mean, literally nothing in life is free, right? That does seem pretty nakedly self-interested. Yeah. I mean, the, what I was going to say is I typically, when I see those things, they're phrased in terms of like people who have fallen through the cracks of society deserve medical care. Right, you know what the, I mean? But, that's, but, but but that's not what this is. That's no, not what Nordic socialism also, is. <laughs> but that's also like a manipulative uh, story that's tinged in propaganda that I think is really important for people to start to see. It's it's kind of like uh, this is a little bit o- off track, but you know it wouldn't be our podcast if I didn't go <laughs> off the rails a little bit. But it's like when you listen to the radio that have all these medical ads on now, right? Yeah. And they'll be like, nine million Americans have, you know, I don't know, poop in their pants, right? <laughs> and here we've got seven million Americans, you know, have, have dry eyeballs. And these people's legs are twitching at night. Right. And these millions are doing this. And sometimes I'll just be in a car. Like, I've driven for an hour. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're up to, like, 180 million Americans who are, like, falling apart. What is going on? <laughs> and, that's, and then everyone who says we need free health care, everyone's like, we need health care, we need health care. My question so is, why everyone is everyone sick? Well, because we live a lot longer. I mean, I think that's the, it's like. No, I think it's the diet. I think it's the sad American diet. Uh, I think it's because everyone's like fat know. and uh, everyone's pre-diabetic because we're eating all this shit that we shouldn't be eating. I think literally our environment is making us sick and everyone's trying to put a plaster, a band-aid on the problem instead of going, why are we all sick? Why is every millennial I know depressed? It's because if you
you just get free shit and you don't work for stuff that makes you depressed. I don't know. I think that it's because of social media and people thinking that there's meaning in things that there is an actual meaning in and then you like pour yourself emotionally into stuff. Like I feel like and I hope and this is not this isn't meant in any way to disparage anybody because they care about things because like oh, we it's, care good, about it's good to care about things. I care deeply about a lot of things. But um, when I see people that are experiencing real emotional turmoil and distress over somewhat abstract political issues that they can have no ability Zero to change. Control, yeah. Like I, I feel like that's like a I mean, new like, kind of. If you of get upset about anything Trump does, I'm like, he's playing you for a <laughs> fool, folks. He's playing you for well, a fool. I mean, but if you want to talk about like depression and anxiety, I feel like people have been drummed up to this place where they feel like they're under attack. And you know, it's that fight or flight response where it evolved like in humans it evolved so that we could detect tigers that are going to eat us. But now it's like Trump said, what? And like, it's not a tiger. It's not going to eat you. It may make you upset, but it pushes all the same buttons and people get wired harder and harder for those buttons to be well, pushed. I mean, one, so one I, healthy choice that people should seriously make is, is limit your screen time. I know people yeah. say that and it's sort of like it's it's in the way that like we now understand that smoking's bad for you and like no one's going around being like oh you know what yeah you should just like use crack cocaine responsibly <laughs> like you know like those things don't happen it's like we should be seriously thinking about our screen time and yeah. people should consider digital minimalism and it will you know uh, listen I, I would say something like listening to a podcast isn't the same thing so you know no, no, it's don't totally eliminate fine. us this, this is just like having a two friends sitting in the car with you yeah, having right? a lovely little <laughs> chat but but no genuinely like one of the things i really want us to be able to do is to to explain to people random random things about life and history and all of that but then also like here are some tools for your life that can actually make your life better and i yeah. had to make a conscious decision with social media to, to step away from it where I realized in that same way you were just explaining. Yeah. Like someone else, like if I'm in a flight or fight mode the whole time for things that are not my own actions. Right. Like if I'm not being like chased down not, not the only road that, you can't by a lion them. or it's, a yeah. cop. You, know? <laughs> you, you have no ability to undo the thing that was said or, and you know what I mean? So like why the, get your knickers in a yeah. knot? It's just not worth it. You know? Well, and I feel like if you want to talk about things that are making people feel depressed and die, like that's, that's number one. I mean, I think, no, so I think that. <laughs> and it was, it was cable news and now it's accelerated by, you know, 10,000 fold with well, social media. Well, I think media. arguably you could say, I mean, it's the pendulum of history, right? It's, it started with, the tablets and then it was the Gutenberg press right. and then it was, you know, books. And then it was, uh, what the first computer or what, like te the telegram, the, the, whatever that timeline is, right. We could, the we beeper. Could, the, yeah. You know, <laughs> the beeper to the, to the brick size cell phones, to the, you know, like the progress. Those that weird computers. Seen, right? that you could carry. And, and as the devices get smaller, the world that you touch gets bigger. Right? right. So it's, I mean, one day, hopefully, you know, what we have, we'll be able to talk to the aliens who are certainly coming folks. If they're not already here, <laughs> if they're not already living in, your bio <laughs> but in all seriousness um you know i think that the world's out of balance and yeah. and for me at least here in new hampshire i think that we're striving to try and bring it more into balance and part of that is actually listening to people and we're doing this show to explore the ideas from the other side to kind yeah. of go, okay, really? Is, maybe there is something here that I can learn and maybe there is cool stuff from this hybrid system. The idea right. of cops doing yoga, I got that from a Nordic that's country. Neat. you know, And I think <laughs> that's a cool idea. So it's sort of like, what can we learn and borrow? Their school choice system is pretty cool, which I don't know. I, you know I'm thinking maybe that might be its own whole episode. I would love I'm, to have uh, Kate on right. and talk about school choice. Well, well, so, you know, Brink and I went last week because we're, you know, we're neighbors and we're buddies and we're kind of like, uh, you know, trouble, not troublemakers, but we're in that lawsuit together. And then we decided we were going to sign up and run for a local office here in yeah. Manchester. And, uh, and you're going to run as selectman. 
going to run the elections. Which as just Lackman. basically like lets him run Ward 11's like little school. Fulfill and my Irish American destiny and start and a political you're machine. You're not allowed to wear that T-shirt because it's got a political slogan yeah. on, but you can wear that one because it has Carla's name on and whatever. And just I, for clarity, I'm not going to start an Irish American <laughs> political machine in Ward 11 that you know of. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I'm running uh, for this new charter that they're trying to create, which, you know, just very briefly, is basically to spin out the budget line for schools in Manchester, which would create a separate budget and a separate taxing authority for Manchester for the schools. And it's basically Hmm. a play to circumvent the tax cap that we currently have in the city. And so I'm really fascinated by school choice and what works in schools? Why are people failing? What, what is successful? And so Scandinavia actually offers some really interesting examples yeah. of... Well, education was already, always a big part of their culture. And I think, so to kind of like wrap up the, the story about um, the Swedish welfare system, the long strokes of it are they were extremely successful. They instituted a very limited welfare system for 40 years. And it kind of like frittered away some of their wealth. They went absolutely hog wild in the 70s and it wrecked them. And they've clawed back since then. And they've um, literally economically had to claw back. Yeah. I mean, they really had to embrace all those free market solutions and stuff. And now, I mean, it's actually a really cool place. There's, there's lots of innovation that's coming yeah. out of that region. Well, but so the, I mean, the interesting thing that I've, I think, and this is how maybe we could talk about this in, in Manchester a little bit too, is that those years of socialism did impact the culture in Scandinavia and in Sweden. And I mean, one of the, one of the like showable ways, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, the uh, Swedes are, you know, the most likely to be upset if somebody takes government benefits that they don't deserve. Um, Well, that's still true, but unfortunately um, in the early eighties, 82% of them said it was never okay to take government benefits you don't deserve. Now only 55% of them say that it's never okay to take government benefits you don't deserve. And you know, when you get in trouble, when that number goes 51, 49, because right. now you're just, you got people who are like subsidized my laziness. And so that's, so in terms of Manchester, in terms of New Hampshire, I mean, uh, if we run down the checklist of the, uh, the Mirdal socialism checklist, Let's see. So what, what do we got going on as far as our situation? We have um, we do have a fairly uh, homogenous population. We do. We but do. but I feel like it's less homogenous all the time. Yeah. Oh. Um, it is hi- less homogenous. Yeah. And I feel like, unfortunately, uh, we have had high levels of trust in the government. But really, for the past like 30 years, it's been spiraling uh, and people don't trust the state government. I mean, people don't trust the state police. People don't trust legislators to represent their interests. The state Senate keeps kind of just doing whatever it wants um, with apparently no well, input. Is, so how are you supposed to trust people if, by way of example, you have a tax cap? So that is like a contract. Right. It passed by more than 4,000 votes. I mean, it was a fairly significantly overwhelming I, I worked thing. my butt off to get exactly. signatures for that. <laughs> and so if you have that, and then they're just like, well, so what? We're doing what we want. So it's like, why should I trust you if you entered into a contract with me? And then you're just like, screw you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then so number two, a civil service service that's efficient and free from corruption. I actually think we're pretty good on that front. But that's kind of a very, like, secondary requirement. I mean, I don't know. I, I trust I, – I don't, I don't think New Hampshire, like – I don't think they're skimming when I go and uh, I, I do mean, my car I actually, registration. I mean, I actually – if you or, talk to old-timers here, I think there's a lot more local dirty corruption, I think particularly mm. in um, – Well, where? And, and, well, <laughs> yeah, in, in various areas. I do think it's localized. But I even think, like, in construction or zoning where certain huh. people get to build houses really fast and other people have to wait years and years. I think there is some shady stuff yeah. that happens. Not as bad as, let's say, like, Chris Christie's domain. <laughs> or, the or, or, yeah. Well, so, all right. So maybe – so we're – we're like a we're like a C on that. Then we'll say um, a traditional Lutheran work ethic. I mean, now, I, and this might not be a popular thing to say, but I think that New Hampshire has. I don't think we have a Lutheran work ethic. We have it's the least religious state in the country. I think that we have 
like a frugal mountain man work ethic. Yeah, like it's a Yankee, different. It's yeah. not like I want to work for nothing. It's like I want to work as so little as die. possible <laughs> so that I can get exactly what I want. Yes. <laughs> you know? I love that. I love that. Work as little as possible to get exactly what I want. Yeah, and it's totally different than the like, yeah, yeah work some... is good. We're just oh, working because yeah, no, work is work. There, there's efficiency <laughs> built into what you just described, right? Yeah. Because it's like, oh, you know, I always tease my husband. I'm like, are you lazy? Because he'll come up with these hacks to do things. And he's like, no, I just want to do things as efficiently as possible so right. that I can free up as much time as I can for leisure, for things right. I love. To be myself, exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, we're, we're, no, uh, we're no medieval Scandinavia. There's not uh, a whole lot of tree bark bread in the stores here. So I think maybe we didn't have to develop those skills quite as much. But you know? from Mount Washington, you can indeed see Northern Lights from here yeah. in New Hampshire. So we have that in common as well. We have glitter rainbow skies. Yeah. Well, so I mean, we're kind of striking out here on the Myrdal socialism <laughs> prerequisite index. Um, they said that if it didn't work in Sweden, it couldn't work anywhere. And unfortunately, I don't think that the kind of state they envisioned would work in New Hampshire. I don't know how unfortunate that is. But, you know, uh, ideological I mean, I predisposition it's good for aside. I books, you know. Yeah. Well, and maybe, I mean, every place is different, too. So I, I think that New Hampshire should keep being New Hampshire and just keep being more New Hampshire all the time. Let's along keep those New lines Hampshire we were talking about. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Peace out.